The COVID pandemic has put trust into top priority on the business agenda. In the book The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howey, they describe the cyclical manner that history punctuates itself with a great crisis occurring every 80 years. Trust is needed to navigate through and new social contracts are created along the way. Now, the last great crisis was World War II 80 years ago. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Thriving in Volatile Times. Today, we will explore how COVID is shaping the future of trust. I'd like to welcome Jerry Mikalski, founder of REX, the Relationship Economy Expedition, where he helps organizations build a future based on relationships and trust. And Alicia Kulasuria, leader of Deloitte's Center for the Age Asia Pacific. Hi, Jerry and Dulisha. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, greetings. It's great fun to be here. This podcast is about thriving in volatile times, and we're definitely living through those today. In addition to the current global pandemic, in the last week we've seen the protests all over the US around Black Lives Matter. So, how should we look to rebuild trust in such chaotic situations? Jerry? We're having this call right as America seems to be melting down. Uh, there are protests in the streets. There's unprecedented chaos. Feels worse than the riots in 1968. But I wasn't really alive. I mean, I was alive, but not not in the streets then. But it's it's really a messy situation. And there are multiple layers of trust that have been breached, broken, and are continually being broken. In fact, sort of there's gasoline being poured over. Uh, lots of aspects of trust here. But there are many examples of trust being won back, or at least being shown here. And one of the big ones here is you will see very often that police forces are taking a knee, which is a gesture of trust. When you take a knee, you're more vulnerable than you were before. And, and vulnerability is kind of one of the paths toward establishing trust. So you can see on you know many videos on YouTube and TikTok and wherever else, these kinds of gestures. And, and this is a, a gesture in the middle of a, of a high tension situation that's in some way similar to why we shake hands and why we wave at people. And apparently, historically, it's to show that we, we're not holding a weapon, we're not dangerous, and to make some contact. So we're seeing little things like that. And then in larger ways, basically crowds behaving in really good ways, like cleaning up after violence happens at night. There's a lot of that sort of thing going on. And some uh, governors, mayors, other sorts of people are doing highly trustworthy things as well. Unfortunately, and again, this is just an American perspective, but I think they're outweighed by all the acts that are violating trust right now. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty dark moment. And Dulisha, do you have anything else to add? I mean, trust at the most fundamental level in this context, it's a social contract, right? It's a reinforcing the social contract. Those are, these are the gestures you're saying. And going to kind of the topic we started on COVID with this series, we saw similar gestures in corporations as well in terms of nurturing trust. There was nurturing trust with the employees where companies were creating safe spaces that you could work still in, in the conditions of like social distancing. So Deloitte, along with all the other corporations in Singapore, immediately went into communicating, demarcating, and having new practices around social distancing. 
in the US, I was talking to some of my friends in large corporations. G appliances, even before the pandemic hit the US, they shut down their factories, they cleaned up all of the spaces, put in temperature screening, policies, practice to make it a safe space. So a lot was done on like keeping it safe. That That is a gesture of trust to say, like, we are going to take care of you. In the context of financial security, there's a lot of uncertainty at this point. A good example, many companies, it is Starbucks, when half of their stores are closed, they still paid all their employees through the lockdowns. And for those employees that were going to work in the areas that were open, they paid them appreciation pay, an extra pay for going to work in these times. And then there's also the kind of the trust with society. We saw many companies pivoting to producing hand sanitizers. So they were, they were making COVID supplies. Uh, L'Oreal, a lot of alcohol manufacturers pivoted to making hand sanitizers. Uh, a lot of auto manufacturers and G Healthcare pivoted to making ventilators. The Hilton Hotels and American Express got together to offer a million beds for healthcare workers. We saw lots of these gestures of trust to rebuild. And all of this comes back to kind of reinforcing the social contract. So both in broadly in society that we're seeing today with, with people getting on the streets in the U.S. and in corporations uh, in the context of COVID, we're seeing many of these gestures of trust, which is heartening to see at this point. I'd like to pick up just briefly on the notion of the social contract that Delisha put into the conversation because it's incredibly important here. And the social contract varies by country, of course, because we have different kinds of states. We have welfare states. We have other sorts of states. But there's also kind of an employment contract that companies have. And all of these are relationships of trust. And the shape of these social and employment contracts really shapes people's expectations and the degree of fear that they might feel in these very tenuous situations. So I think it's worth paying considerable attention to the nature of these social contracts and, and where they might be going. And that rapidly becomes a political conversation, but this whole situation is, is amazingly political. Can we start by unpacking this word a bit further? What is trust? Jerry, can we start with you? So yeah, trust is, is quite complicated. It's a fun topic because it's one of those short words that everybody thinks they understand. Uh, and yet, once you start talking about it and kind of unpacking the onion, it turns out we don't know that much and we don't necessarily agree on things. But there are some basic trust models, and one of them is the ABI model. Trust is ability plus benevolence plus integrity. So it's like, can you do the thing you said you're going to do? Do you have my best interest in doing it? And are you going to carry it out? And this is a long-standing model that's really quite interesting. Um, there's the ABCD model. Uh, which is really interesting. Are you able, believable, connected, and dependable? This comes out of Kenneth Blanchard and a bunch of other thinking. Uh, and, and again, there's a series of these kinds of models, but it's also worth looking at kind of basic maths and trust. So trust is in some sense associative and transitive. So if you or Delicia were to say, hey, Jerry, you need to call so-and-so, I would send her an email immediately and say, hey, really nice to meet you. And I would be leaning into that introduction because I trust you guys, right? And I, I would be looking for the good in that person. It's amazing what this small gesture of an introduction uh, plays out as, as trust. Uh, and if I invited you to an event and you saw met other people at my event, uh, you would probably do the same sort of thing. Uh, so in some sense, we have this, this kind of mathematical properties around trust, and yet, and yet trust is really fragile. 
and it's very indirect. You can't order people to trust people. Trust has to be built over time. Trust is built through experience, through um, really by, by watching people be trustworthy, not by claiming that they should be trusted. Uh, so when companies advertise and say, you know, this is the brand nine out of 10 doctors recommend most, they're doing this clumsy proxy for earning someone's trust by trying to repeat, hey, trust me, trust me, through the medium that they understand how to use to kind of bombard people and annoy them with a message. So it's really weird because we have, companies often resort to advertising to earn trust, and yet they know that advertising is in some sense a breach of trust. So it's complicated. Andalusia, what are your thoughts on this? Wow, how do you add to that? Jerry, it's always a pleasure to have you on these things. You, you, so much depth of knowledge here. I think one thing to add in, again, in the context of COVID, in the, in the current times, we've seen corporations look at trust. And as Jerry said, it is about human connection. It is about human interaction. And in that context, the four dimensions, physical, financial, emotional, and digital, that corporations can think about in this current context, how trust is nurtured. Right, so you can think of nurturing trust from keeping physical space safe. You can think of nurturing trust in terms of financial concerns are being served, whether it's an employee or a customer. Uh, there's also emotional trust and social trust that those have been safeguarded. And then one that is less talked about, but digital trust, that your information is secure. So beyond kind of the basic tenets of trust from a corporation standpoint, I think those might be relevant as well, but I think someone should go replay Jerry's list to, to understand the basics of trust. That's an incredible summary of decades of research. Well, mostly other people's research, but the topic is connected to things we don't expect it to be connected to, like vulnerability, right? And politics. And when you start turning over these rocks and sort of inspecting what, what kind of creatures are living underneath, you discover things you didn't really expect to find. Yeah. And a little sidebar, I would love to hear a comment on this, Jerry. They say that trust is easily broken, but hard to put together, right? So it seems like it's easier to build trust, but if you break it, it takes much longer to come back from. I think that's broadly true and yet not always true. So for example, if a company makes a mistake, but has earned people's trust beforehand and then at the instant of the mistake says, oh my God, we really screwed that up and here's why and here's how we're going to fix it and so forth. They can be back up at a trustworthy point very quickly. In fact, I would argue that a company that has faced no crises well is not really yet trustworthy. It's kind of not battle tested. So this may be a positive spin on looking at crises, but, but really crises are opportunities to show that you are trustworthy. Responding well passes that test. So these are times to build your trust capital. Absolutely. And there's plenty of people saying out there, hey, companies, people are going to remember what you did during coronavirus. In the U.S. now, we've spiraled way beyond coronavirus. We now have, uh, you know, at least two major calamities coming, if not the trifecta. Now, Jerry, in your TED Talk, you discuss design from trust. Can you share the differences between an organization designed from mistrust to one truly designed from trust? Are the differences clearly apparent to us customers, or does it require a deeper look? 
Well, it's funny. This whole notion of design from trust struck me, I think, at the beginning, quite a few years ago now, at least 20, 25 years ago, in the educational system when I, I met a retired teacher named John Taylor Gatto who had written an article called The Sixth Lesson School Teacher and a bunch of books beyond those. And he was describing how school doesn't trust children. And uh, it was totally counterintuitive. And one of the really fun things about design from trust is that when you hit it, it's very uncomfortable and counterintuitive, which is, to me, evidence of how deeply we've buried this notion of trust and mistrust of people. So, you know, the thing I ask people a lot is, have you used Wikipedia? And do you remember the day when you discovered how Wikipedia works? That any idiot on the planet can go change any page in Wikipedia and hit save, and the next person to see that page will see bad info, vandalism, whatever. How did you feel? Right. And most people felt pretty anxious and, and weirded out that moment. And yet most people went through a second insight and they were like later they figured out, well, this seems to be working. This weird counterintuitive thing seems to work. And then they passed into a, sort of an acceptance that this form of vulnerability of, hey, anybody come in and change this page was turning into an artifact that was created very, not for free, but pretty close and was open to the world that was extraordinary and it really changed the world. Because remember, before Wikipedia, you kind of have to go to the library and leaf through the Britannica or something like that. Now move this into the workspace. How we treat our workers and how much leeway they have is an aspect of trust. And there's a Brazilian businessman named Ricardo Semler, whose story I love to tell. His father founded a company called Semco. And Semco was sort of a B2B a supplier, a solver of thorny uh, industrial problems. And uh, Ricardo wanted no part of his father's company. He just wanted nothing to do with it. He wanted to be playing his rock band and surf a lot. But his father got sick and then passed away young. So Ricardo came in and inherited the company and then started making changes. And in the early changes, nobody really trusted him. So at one point, uh, he tells a story that he's negotiating with two union uh, representatives, one of whom is Ignacio Lula da Silva, who later becomes the president of Brazil and later gets put in jail. And these two union reps are not trusting Semler because he would like to get rid of the timestamping business, you know, tracking everybody's time and having them clock in and clock out. He just wants the work done. And for three months, the union representatives are sure that what he's really trying to do, that his ulterior motive is to get rid of the five-minute grace period that workers have from when they clock in to when they must be at their workstation. And then they figure out that he's actually being earnest, and then they start changing that radically. And then one thing tumbles after the other. I don't know the full details of Semler and Semco's story, but it involves deeply trusting the employees to the point where once they really got into this, employees in the company were setting salaries, bonuses, everything else. The books were open to everybody. And when the books were open to everybody, you don't want to pay all the money out because you know that the company won't be around next year. You can't really do that. So a lot of good decisions get made collectively, and there isn't that friction of why aren't you paying me more, whatever's going on, because the books are open, and if you can figure out a fair distribution. And unfortunately, this kind of situation is very hard if your chief executives are being paid way more than they, in my mind, ought to be, and the, the difference between the top tier and the low tier is so huge. But that, to me, is a skeleton in the closet that makes it hard to get to trust, that, that those kinds of inequalities, if they can be evened out, allow you to move in to things like workplace democracy, which is a pretty big movement that's all about trust at work. So companies that are doing that 
are designing their environments, their work environments from trust. And one last thing, when you trust people, whether it's kids in school or workers in the workplace or those people that we like to call consumers that I think of as your allies in some sense, you're unlocking the genius that they have. When you don't trust them and you treat them as consumers or you put them into a system with a rigid lockstep like our educational system where if you're curious in math class, if you're curious about French in math class, you're a troublemaker. If you stop with those constraints because you need to control everybody, you suddenly unlock the genius that everybody has because they can go toward the tasks that are meaningful to them. They can really apply the thing that they're passionate about to whatever the problems are that are in the environment. And that implies letting go of some control on management's part, but it turns into better outcomes all around, and it even turns into better health outcomes. So for workers who are on the clock, if they have control over when their break is, something that simple, their long-term health outcomes are better than workers who don't have any control and must go you know, take their 15-minute break at this exact hour, simple things like that. So, so trust, again, has all these knock-on effects, and runs very, very deep. Jerry, can I ask a quick question? This is brilliant stuff. What if there's a bad actor that breaks the trust and does the system fall apart? Bad actors are fascinating. When I give speeches on this, I have a, a slide where I say, you know, I'm not talking about naive trust because everybody knows there's bad actors. And when I say the words bad actors, I click and I put up a picture of Michael Hasselhoff the guy from Knight Rider, and underneath it says in large type, bad actors. You know, it's a guaranteed <laughs> chuckle. <laughs> but the problem is that in systems designed for mistrust, those bad actors have eaten our brains. And the designers of these systems are basically designing the entire system as if everybody was a bad actor. And again, in so doing, they limit the genius that's in the room. So designing from trust does not ignore the bad actors. There are clearly some bad actors out there. But first, you design the system around the good actors to liberate that genius and to let people congregate, mix, take ownership for what they're doing. But second, you try to turn the bad actors into good actors as much as is humanly possible. The best answer to a vandal coming into Wikipedia who's just messing around is putting them to work, fixing something they care about, whether it's manga or Minecraft or whatever. It's like, hey, you know, it wasn't very nice of you to scribble up this page, but are you interested in biology or astronomy or whatever? If you can bend people toward what the group is trying to get done together, that's a huge win, and it doesn't require you to design the whole system around mistrusting everybody. And that's, I think, a key here is that is that design from mistrust starts at the beginning with control measures and design from trust deals with the bad actors as late as possible and as creatively as possible. There's been a lot of talk recently about the future of work and how COVID-19 has forced companies to re-evaluate how work is conducted and what shifts might be necessary for the future. To what extent are organizations actually looking to redesigning work from trust versus making more superficial changes? Dulisha, what have you observed? I think Gary spent last answer talked a lot about designing from trust, but let me take a step like stepping forward in terms of the work context. A lot of the discourse today around work is around industry 4.0 around automation and the fear in built into that is that robots will replace humans and the loss of livelihood that will come in that context. However, if you were to reframe technology and the adoption of technology and all of this was bucketed on the industry 4.0 around ways to enhance human capability and productivity rather than replace it, 
you could switch you could turn away and kind of convert a lot of that fear into anticipation so in the discourse of redesigning how we work and bringing more technology to support us i think leaders should look to build on a strong foundation of trust kind of saying that trust us that we are going to take care of you and your needs that we are going to retrain you for what you don't know we are going to repurpose you take the tacit knowledge that you have about the business and use that in a different way if your job can be done by others by or by less people so i mean that's one form of redesigning from trust in a industry 4.0 era but i'm very curious to see how jerry would add to this in the context of designing from trust yeah it, it's funny because we've already touched on a lot of these questions the the notion of the employment contract the social contract and we're bringing in now this idea is automation going to augment or replace workers and your average worker in a not very democratic organization a very autocratic organization which from what i've seen describes many if not most of them is looking up waiting for the sword of damocles to fall on them because they've realized that automation is sort of making its way through every every job category they've seen lots of people first outsourced in the 80s and 90s and now made redundant and in some cases asked to train their replacements or their robots in different ways and I'm reminded of a really nice article that appeared in the New York Times magazine a year ago, a year and a half ago about Sweden. And there was a Swedish mining company, and the cover of the magazine was actually a picture of a guy who was holding what looked like a remote control rig hanging from his neck deep in a mine, and there was this excavator right in front of him and one in the background. He was controlling four or five different autonomous rigs. And the whole idea was that the people in this company were not worried about being fired because their contract said We're not going to fire you. We're going to find out a way to re-employ you. But we all realize together that unless we lean into automation, we're dust. We're not going to be around as a business in three years because costs are. You know, we we have to keep costs down, etc. So together as a company, they were operating more as a unit and leading the company into greater levels of automation. So it's kind of surprising, but I think a lot of executives are trying to figure out. how do i actually get everybody leaning in to do this well and it has to do with much bigger things than am i paying them enough or did we get the right technology or anything like that those are small bore questions the larger questions are the trust relationships the kind of contractual environment the goals set the expectations of the people sort of at the table so i i think that's interesting and then just to go a little bit deeper on to augment or replace I'm not sure that people understand enough what augmenting technology even looks like or what that means and I don't think we've gone very deep on that. I think replace is pretty easy. Like if I can create an an RPA grip that replaces 15 reports that used to be done by people that took, you know, a couple of days to assemble and suddenly that's a a button pushed and the the report rolls up and that can fire that person, we're really pretty clear about what that is. But augment is is okay. How does the human and the computer? How do they harmonize together? And how does the computer become a superpower for the things that the human might want to do? And I'd love to see a lot more work done in that area. I think that's a that's a really fruitful vein to pursue. And I think a lot of people one of one of the problems again in the U.S. is that 
we're really not good at retraining anybody. Our infrastructure for retraining is terrible. Our way of looking forward for what are the new skills is not that great. Our colleges and universities are not well equipped to be flexible to do these kinds of things. So as automation is now going to wipe out more and more work, not just blue collar work, but white collar work, you know, your average news story about an accident, a sports event, or a weather incident can easily be written by AI now. That's done, that's easy, and it's reliable and it's quick and it costs nothing. So that, and that's moving through the law, it's moving through realm after realm after realm, and the white collar workers are realizing, oh, okay, this wasn't just about robots and manual labor, and it wasn't just about rolling up the spreadsheet for the report. Thinking work is now under the same kind of siege, and to go back to the point, and if we can figure out how to make all these people super people, through the application of enhancing technologies, it's a big win all around, and that requires looking back at the agreement that they're working under, among many other things. Jerry, building on top of what you've just mentioned, we are also hearing a lot that COVID is creating opportunities that crisis is a catalyst for change, and that we need to focus on creativity to reimagine our new normal. So where does trust fit into this? So crisis is clearly a catalyst for change. In some cases, crisis is the only way some systems change. And we're presently sitting in a global crisis, and in fact, a series of crises kind of nested up against each other. And I'll draw attention to one way that this could change, and that's this notion of abundance and scarcity, which is, again, a little bit of a complicated issue because partly we think that business creates abundance because I can go down to the supermarket and I see shelf after shelf full of cereals and soaps and sauces and crackers and ice creams and whatnot, and it looks like abundance. But in fact, most business is focused on creating scarcity because there's a There's a story that we get convinced of. I went to business school and they convinced me that scarcity equals value, that unless you have scarcity, there's no business model there. And I think the opportunity for change here in this crisis is to rethink what abundance means and what scarcity means and to try to adopt what you might call an abundance mindset. The idea that there is still business when you have abundance. And the best example here is open source software. And I was a tech industry trends analyst back in the day when IBM looked like it was about to die. And the company saved itself by adopting first Apache, then Linux, and then donating uh, Eclipse to open source, and then a, a whole bunch of other things. But that solved a lot of technical problems that IBM hadn't been able to solve on its own. And all of that created abundance because when you're participating in open source software, nobody owns it, everybody can use it, anybody can modify it, etc. And then IBM proceeded to sell several billion dollars in service revenues, customizing software on top of all that open source software for their clients. So that was you know, profitability on top of abundance. Now that's unusual. We're not really taught to look at that way. And I like that kind of mindset shift. And you know, in the middle of the COVID crisis, a lot of research data for vaccines, for gene tracing of the COVID virus, for everything else, a lot of information is being shared very, very openly in a great way. There, there are certainly side deals being cut for exclusive access to potential vaccines and all that, and the U.S. president is in fact implicated in some of that. But generally, this incident has provoked an unusual amount of scientific collaboration worldwide, which is fabulous, and which might 
provoke this kind of collaboration on other fronts, on other topics, in other ways. And I hope that that actually happens. So I think that the last thing I'll say about this particular part is that in order to get to something like an abundance mindset in the middle of a crisis, you have to not let your limbic system be hijacked by the crisis. You actually have to stay pretty calm. You have to be able to assess realistically what's going on and then sit down and start to think creatively about what to do. And then you have to figure out how can we reestablish trust in the situation? What is the more trustworthy thing to do? And I think all of those, if you can get to those places in your perspective, will lead you toward some really catalyzing shifts in how you see what you do, who gets value from it, how you make money from it, and all the, all the different stakeholders' relationships to it. How about you, Dulisha? This is brilliant. We are very aligned on this, and there's a very similar shift, mindset shift we talked about from problem to opportunity. Instead of seeing all the problems and kind of losing faith, and it's easy to lose faith in these times, if one were to see the opportunities that are afforded, it would drive a lot more passion and towards unlocking those opportunities. And in particular, as kind of our current system seems increasingly intractable, we have a set of these what are termed wicked problems, that com complex, dynamic, seemingly intractable problems, to reframe them as wicked opportunities. And the, the key to unlocking these things are ecosystemic in its nature. You can These are not problems that can be solved by an individual or corporation or any one group. It, you, you need everyone to come together on this. And in, in some sense, these are particularly with all the funding coming in to support economies and shoring up economies in this COVID, in this pandemic crisis, this could be the new version of public-private partnerships. In past crises, public funding was used to build public infrastructure like roads, bridges, parks. And similar, we should use some of the funding going into kind of shoring up economies to build a new infrastructures, we need digital infrastructures, sustainability infrastructures, platform infrastructures, and Doing this, like you said, with abundance and scarcity, you had to shift your mindset to the opportunity rather than the problem. And if you do this right, it's an amazing way to build broad-based societal trust or to rebuild the societal trust in government and all the related parties. And it's not easy, but it's one of those things that do give us a little bit of hope to say that trust is actually the anchor that will help us shift these mindsets. There is a leap of faith here. From what was just discussed, both of you believe that the future will be built on ecosystems. What role does trust play in this less structured environment? Yeah, so you're right in pointing out that ecosystems, I mean, we just talked that the ecosystems are going to be more work in the future, be done in ecosystems, more the more important work. And these are less control. There's less structure and control in these ecosystems. It's not like being in a company, as Jerry mentioned before, with an employment contract, right? So trust, therefore, becomes increasingly important. It's the glue that binds that relationship. And participation and action can't be forced in this context. So in the context of an ecosystem, you got to trust in the big narrative, the vision that everyone is collectively driving towards. You got to trust in the right intention behind that narrative, that it's not just for personal gain. The, the example for IBM was great, where like there's a broader narrative, and then there was gain for the company, but those two things were intertwined in a way that was acceptable to the ecosystem. You've got to trust that partners in the ecosystem are all going to pull their weight. 
that the give and take is balanced. In ecosystem, there's also kind of a rebuilding trust among unequal players, you know, from prior work. Now, this brings to mind some work we did with, again, with G Appliances. They built an open innovation ecosystem called First Build. And they were inviting anyone who was interested in the domain of kitchen appliances to jump in and say, what else do we need? What, what would you innovate in this space? Now, why would an individual with what they believe to be a great idea come and expose it for a large company to profit from? There'd be a lot of business. Why would I tell you? I can go do it myself. I can take it to someone else. So GE had to rebuild the contract of how they interacted in order to develop and nurture this ecosystem. So what they did was, you know, in the traditional GE way or any, any large company, if you work with a company, the company owns intellectual property. Here they switch it around. Any idea that you put on the platform, you would own the intellectual property. You would own that. If they would take that and they will license it from you. So they flip that. It's a, it's a subtle, but a very important subtle way of saying you own it's a rebuilding of trust in that ecosystem so that previously unequal partners, the big guy and the small one can come together for a collective purpose of driving forward this. I mean, that's, it, that's not solving a wicked problem or wicked opportunity that, that we talked about. However, that's a really good example of talking about how do you build trust in an ecosystem. And Jerry, what about you? This is a, a lovely topic because we're in a, an era of deep, deep transformation. And one of the things that, that my wife and I talk a lot about and see happening is that jobs are melting. Like the, the idea that you would have one job for your life, like, you know, the one company person, that's just going away. It's melting. But uh, in fact, we're moving towards sort of portfolio careers, but also companies are shrinking. Even as companies are getting larger because they're kind of buying up smaller companies, they're getting rid of staff as much as they can and working toward these ecosystems, right? And their DNA is not really well oriented toward being collaborators in an ecosystem because they've been squeezing their suppliers because this, because that. You have to then examine the trust relationships with each of those stakeholders and say, do they have any good reason to trust us? Like historically, what do we have there? And this may uncover a couple of skeletons in the closet that, that need to be brought out and aired out and maybe repaired or apologized for or something like that. Who knows? Because there's all sorts of things that happen as you transition from a highly vertically integrated company that can command and control the whole food chain toward a company that is agile and quick and smart and living inside of an ecosystem. So that's one thing. I really like Clay Shirky's notion of the plausible promise. And when he described this, he was talking about Linus Torvalds and the Linux project. And Linus basically said, look, guys, I want to make a version of Unix that will run on my PC. Will you help me? And his promise was, if you help me, any aid you give will turn into the finished version of software that will be published under this open source license, the GNU license, and therefore will be usable by everybody in perpetuity. So all improvements get fed back to everybody, etc. And a bunch of people jumped in, developed Linux, which ate the world, basically. Uh, and it is what saved IBM in the previous story I was telling. 
Now, when I was in grad school, I had the good fortune of studying for a while under Russell Acuff, who was one of the early systems thinkers. And he had really brilliant ideas about systems and problems and all that. And I don't know that he was talking so much about ecosystems, but he was definitely talking about stakeholders instead of just uh, shareholders or instead of command and control architectures. He was very much, he, he coined the term lowerarchy instead of hierarchy. There's a bunch there. But a, a more modern thinker like Otto Scharmer is talking about shifting from ego systems to ecosystems. And I think that's really fascinating because there's something about command control, uh, having people on your staff, having a larger office or whatever else that to me feels very 1980s or before and we need to kind of get past, but may still be lingering in corporate culture. And if we're going to be trustworthy participants in an ecosystem, We've got to rethink the agreements. We've got to air the dirty laundry. We've got to figure out what the plausible promise is. We've got to work our way toward understanding how to make a fertile ecosystem really work. And here, the ecosystem metaphor should not be taken lightly. It's actually a, a beautiful metaphor because as you start thinking about how ecosystem services are generated, one of the things, for example, is if you focus on healthy soil, soil fertility, everything else gets good. So if we really focus on soil fertility, so here the key is, what is the analog to soil fertility in a company that's not into farming, not into soil, right? And I think it's, are your workers happy? Are their ideas churning? How is the spirit or the culture of your enterprise? I think that's a kind of soil fertility, that's for sure. And so that goes back to trust, that goes back to a whole series of things. And by the way, this metaphoric soil that I'm referring to here isn't something that your company owns, isn't something that's only inside of your control in your territory, but in fact, it's this shared asset in the commons that you need to nurture with other members of the ecosystem. And that's going to require new kinds of coordination, new kinds of uh, agreement, uh, new kinds of work with people, some of whom were your former competitors, etc. So I think there's a really interesting future here in rethinking, redesigning how organizations, how large multinationals rethink themselves to be players in large ecosystems, which they don't fully command and control and can't. And, and, and that's going to be playing out over the next 20 years for sure. And as we already know by now, technology will increasingly be a pervasive part of our lives. How does trust intersect with technology then? So, in this context, uh, we have to consider how trust can be embedded in the data, right? So, for example, blockchain is a hyped-up technology that is emerging and accelerating in its use. A blockchain-based system to authenticate the origin of a product or to authenticate the validity of a transaction are examples of being able to trust the data. So then you're not just trusting what people said, you're... You can look into the data itself and see that that transaction happened. You can look into the data and, and qualify that that product came from where it said it was supposed to come from. But technology and data isn't a, a one-way thing. Right? There are other factors around trust and data to explore as well. Data privacy and security. Those are big, big topics in, in some parts of the world more than others. And we would, we would assume that any data that we provide will be kept securely and handled with the right privacy protocol. And just like everything else, there's a huge amount of trust there. And if that trust is breached, it is very hard to recover from. I think there's a really interesting part here where, on the one hand, companies are often trying to replace trust with automation of some sort. So 
if I make it so that when you sign up to be a driver with, with Uber, you have to give me your driver's license, your credit card, your this, your that, so that then when we boot you off the platform, it's very hard for you to come in and get a fake ID and all that. It's not that you interviewed me and figured out that I was trustworthy, it's that you automated that, that thing away. And uh, the blockchain's a little bit like that. So I'm really interested in the interfaces where trust is actually built across communities or across groups who have relationships and how that will still play in our world because we can't replace all these trust connections with just automation because then when push comes to shove nobody knows each other and there are no trust relationships to fall back on i mean when we when we, when we talk about society for example we use the analogy of the the fabric of society and we call it the fabric because the the warp and woof are all these little interdependencies between humans that you check up on the the older lady who lives two floors down because she's not able to get out and we're under lockdown and you make sure that she's got enough to eat and is is okay and these little interdependencies are what form society and companies are no longer just suppliers of a juicy drink or a nice sandwich they're actually participants in society and the more they think of themselves as peers in society rather than producers who are selling stuff to consumers the more i think they'll understand how to do this and now back to technology if i spent a dozen years as a tech industry trends analyst um, and I, i had a really fun time kind of made my reputation doing that my advice to companies and i i for half of that time my clients were global multinationals and they're at the time they had advanced technology groups which like corporate strategic groups have all vanished in the meantime Uh, they got sort of bludgeoned into submission uh, in, the, in the decades between. Um, but my advice was as valuable if I told them not to use the technology as if I, I said, go ahead and use this and here's how and where. Um, because technology is a two-edged sword. A knife can fillet a fish, it can make you dinner, uh, it can also kill somebody. Nuclear power can give us power, it can give us weapons. And privacy technologies, so contact tracing apps during coronavirus, are fabulous for tracking down who might have had contact with an infected individual. And two days later, they're really terrible uh, under a tyrannical regime that's using them to find people. So we have to be really mindful of what Delisha just said about data privacy and security, and we have to figure out how to design these applications so that they're secure but also safe in a very different sense. Secure meaning, you know, hackers can't get in there and steal the data or mess with it, but safe in the sense of people even using the system in its purposeful way can't use it to hurt the, the people at the end of the system who are actually registered and using the system. So I love conversations about technology because all too often we think that innovation is an, an unalloyed good and technologies are usually good. It turns out that new things aren't always good and technologies aren't always good and it takes proper intent and a, a good understanding of the relationships of the system to use these technologies well and implement them well. That intent is, is all important. Sure, this, this happens to a previous uh, part of the conversation where you're talking about designing from trust and, and it seems like in this case we're using technology to design from mistrust. But even what I said before, like, hey, you can trust from a blockchain standpoint, the origins and all that, because you're not trusting the person telling you that it's really where it came from. You can use the whole thing about like, hey, because it's the system for your Uber, Grab driver, anyone is, it's a system that we trust that versus you're not trusting it from the, the, the prior markers. So it comes into the ethics of technology. 
and designing from trust versus designing from mistrust. Very definitely. Um, and I, I think you said that really well. And to wrap things up, do both of you have any final advice for organizations looking to embrace trust to thrive and prosper? Okay, so it's a very broad conversation here and lots that we could go into. I, I picked three things. One is leadership matters. Two is the mindset shift. And three is kind of ecosystems uh, across all of this stuff. So leadership matters now more than ever, right? Building trust with your employees and your customers and societies to go through the kind of the different phases of respond, recover, and thrive of this crisis will go a long way to give you permission to lead in the future. So this kind of you're building your trust capital that gives you permission to lead in the future. That's the first one. The mindset shift we talked about, uh, Jerry talked about kind of abundance equals scarcity minus trust. I talked about kind of this shifting from problem to opportunity. There's a huge opportunity around these big, the wicked opportunities. There's no better time than now, as you phrase the crisis as a catalyst, to go after these big opportunities. And if you do that, you gain the trust of your employees, your customers, and society, and that gives you greater permission to lead. Right? It's another example at a societal level on, on kind of building the trust capital. And the last one is that most of the work we need to do in the future is going to be around ecosystem. So kind of reinforcing that the trust is what is the glue that binds partners together in ecosystem. And without trust that these ecosystems will never reach their potential. So this is a big, gnarly, yet very interesting problem. Trust is going to be so critical to how we move forward to thrive. And it's been a great conversation. Thank you. So I think that one of the first things I'll say comes out of this notion of trust, which is pay attention to how these ideas make you feel. We are so deep down the rabbit hole of mistrust and designing for mistrust and assuming we can't really trust anybody and in the middle of a multiple crises that are kind of overlapping and who knows what else going on, it's very hard to sort of shift over to think that maybe we can figure out trust. And so ideas that sound like design from trust are going to feel counterintuitive. They're going to punch you in the stomach. And yet I'm offering that these ideas are actually the path toward abundance, profit, longevity, a bunch of other things like that. Trust will help you tackle those wicked problems and turn them into wicked opportunities. It's actually a really useful lever. And by lever, I don't mean to imply that you could just apply energy to one end and mechanically trust will, will change things around. I mean, you actually have to earn trust over time. You have to figure out these dynamics. You have to pay respectful attention to the different participants in the ecosystem, all of that. Uh, so, so as Delisha was saying, trust is the glue that binds all these people together in ecosystems. And I think that as we head toward trying to figure our way out of these uh, nested dilemmas, we're going to need more trust, not less. And we're going to do that in the face of a lot of evidence, and a lot of events in the world that are going to tell us not to trust people that are going to cause us to enter a mindset of mistrust. So I want, I just want to have everybody who's listening to this pay attention to that and realize when they've slipped into a place where it's like, man, I guess we can't trust anybody for anything, because that's a dangerous place to come from. Do you have any hopes for the future? Well, that was definitely a very insightful session. Thank you for sharing your perspectives on how leaders and organizations can look to build trust to recover and thrive through the COVID-19 crisis. And that's it for today's episode of Thriving in Volatile Times. 
I'd like to thank our guests once again for joining us on this episode. Jerry and Alicia, thank you. Now, if you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered, you can send us an email. The address is cpodcast at Deloitte.com. That's spelled S-E-A podcast at Deloitte.com or head on to our website, Thriving in Volatile Times. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. I am Dishraf and until next time.